This morning I want to uh, continue with this theme of self and not-self. And today I'd like to, in a way, offer uh, a time to integrate some of what we've learned and explored and to review and to go a little further in a few ways. So my focus will be on these two main ways of working with the theme of self and not-self that we explored in the guided meditation. That is first to see when a sense of self manifests, what I was calling a thick sense of self, when there's a stronger sense of self manifest. And remembering that the self isn't the enemy, (laughs) that we want to really see that sense of self appearing and study it, notice it, and so forth. And then the second uh, main area is to open up experientially Uh, in conjunction with this first type of practice, two different ways of experiencing very ordinary, in very ordinary ways, without that strong sense of self. And today I also want to go a little further, um, or maybe maybe not so much further, but really uh, connect and integrate some of the themes that I haven't covered in as much detail. Uh, First, to talk about a theme which came up um, at the end of the last session, uh, particularly in the discussion, although I've talked about it from a few times, which is the sense of um, sometimes of fear or anxiety that is there as we thin the sense of self. You know, that this is a part of this path. This is... uh, 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 a practice that can have its moments that are challenging. And I wanted to bring in that theme. And I also wanted to give a little more attention to a theme which I've mentioned, which is uh, what, in what ways is it skillful to have a sense of self? And uh, sort of the combination of pointing to skillful ways of um, manifesting self at the same time that the teaching is that when we go most deeply, our conventional sense of self uh, doesn't make sense. And that it's a conventional prop for experience that when we look most deeply, there's much more of a sense, we might say, uh, using different language, of interdependence, of uh, permeability, of, uh, of experience happening without central control directing, you know. And so that's what this practice is pointing to, and that the deepest happiness and liberation are connected with that thinning of the self. That's the claim of this tradition, and really, I think, of most spiritual traditions that there's something about the mystery of self and not-self which is deeply linked with um, a more accurate understanding of who we are, of reality, and of what freedom is. That's what's being suggested. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a deep and powerful teaching. In the sessions up till now, I've tried to take us into this somewhat gradually. (laughs) 
And so given a lot of sessions, which is a luxury, and I've really enjoyed that. And so some of the other sessions give more focus to different aspects of this theme. So the first session I particularly talked about how this is often a confusing theme. You know, what does not self mean? What is, what is that? You know, why should I study not self? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, why should I practice to realize not self? So there's a lot of confusion, uh, paradox, possibly contradiction, even in the language. And I think it's good to be could to be good to be playful. And you can always remember that statement, which I've given a few times from the Zen teachers to 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 study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. Well, that's another way of expressing what we're exploring. So there is paradox. It can be confusing. And yet I think there also can be ways that it can be understood rather more clearly, particularly when we connect it with uh, experiential investigation such as in the guided meditation, then I think things become uh, not so complex. So I think that would be also my suggestion continually to ground all of this inquiry, especially in experience and in direct experience. Uh, And then we can have the uh, conceptualization really uh, complement that. So the first session I looked looked at the the, uh, sense of uh, how this can be confusing and also gave a number of perspectives by which we could look at it, uh, look at the phenomenon. That was connected with the second theme, was looking at some of the varieties uh, uh, of self, how self appears. And I'll talk about that further in a moment. Uh, Also looked at uh, what the core teachings of the Buddha are on self and not self. That would have been, I think, three weeks ago. And then two weeks ago, went into uh, more experientially based investigation of how we experience without a strong sense of self uh, controlling or directing experience. So to go back then, first part on self, then second part on not self, and then a third part today, uh, more integrative comments. So first, um, to go back to that sense of, of self, uh, remember that what, particularly in the classical tradition, is being pointed to as problematic is a sense of a separate, independent, controlling self. It's not saying that every sense of self is wrong. And you can remember those passages that I quoted, uh, particularly near the beginning, where the Buddha, when asked, is there a self? stays silent. And when he's asked, is there no self, he stays silent. <laughs> right? He doesn't say, oh, yeah, no self, you got it. In fact, remembering that no self is not a good translation of anatta. Not self is, is more accurate. It's like, like one consonant has a, a big difference in terms of meaning. You know, that not self means not this extreme view of an independent controlling self. And yet we have that conditioning in all sorts of ways. So we are invited to look at the different ways that self manifests. And we looked at a number of different ways, some of them more 
obvious, some of them more subtle. You know, so for example, I talked about the, uh, the cultural conditioning. Every culture has certain notions of self, which are quite different if we've, you know, particularly if we've been to cultures which are very different from our culture, you know, where there can be a very different sense of self, maybe a more uh, uh, sense of self as bound up with community as we find, you know, maybe in, well, actually in a lot of cultures up until the modern time, but one would find it in some, you know, for example, when I've gone to Asia, I have found um, in, you know, particularly being in Thailand, that uh, there's, there's more of a, a sense of self as bound up with the collective, which is changing very rapidly at this time. And I told some stories about how I was, some of our groups connecting, you know, East and West are part of those changes, if you remember some of those stories of being at meetings and having Thai friends who had, you know, been in California inviting people to give personal evaluations of what went well with, the, with our meetings at the end of the meetings and making their comments and how that was clearly uncomfortable for people, but they really got into it. And, and very interesting, right? Very interesting. That would not be typical in that cultural context. So, there, so we have a particular cultural conditioning, which I was suggesting the dominant one is to be um, an individual who, for whom kind of the center of life is my story. <laughs> <laughs> Right? And that's the meaning. And I've, t I've told some stories of how I've been in other cultures where that wasn't the center of, of gravity and come back and come to the Bay Area and I felt like everyone said, hey, here's what's happening to me. Here's what's happening to me. Hey, listen to my story. Oh, I really want you to hear. And again, I'm, I'm making a little bit of fun of that because I guess it's making fun of myself and of us. But it's, um, that is sometimes a more subtle form of self that we're not really aware of. You know, this sense, you know, this is, a, a, there was a, a Berkeley sociologist, some of you know, Robert Bella, who wrote probably one of the best books about the sense of uh, the self in Western, particularly U.S. culture, the dominant sense of self. It was a book called Habits of the Heart. It was about 20 years ago or so. And this is what he said. He called it hyper-individualism. <laughs> and he said that... Um, this was formed in a society, he said, that encourages us to be free, to cut free from the past, to define our own selves, to choose the groups with which we wish to identify. Such individualism rests on the view that the individual has a primary reality where a society is second order, derived, or an artificial construct. Right? And so we have that sense of wanting to express ourselves, to be all we can be to name that, I guess that's the motto of the U.S. Army as uh, influenced by the human potential movement. <laughs> it's true, I think that's where it came from. <laughs> uh, so, so we have that, so we can look at that, how, and that's why I think it's helpful to travel or to have uh, friends who maybe have very different perspectives, you know, to get a sense, there is that sense of self which is, which is subtle because everyone, or not everyone, but large numbers of people share it and it's sort of dominant cultural 
model. And there's also, that's, so that's what we can call that the sort of the, the cultural self. There's also the social self, how I identify with my roles or how I appear to other people. You know, I am a teacher, I am a meditator, I am a, uh, this kind of person. I am, it could be, uh, it could be I am uh, good-looking, I am not good-looking, I am this, I am that. How I appear, how I think I appear uh, to other people, what my self-image is. So there's a whole sense of self that we could call the social I. And I also uh, mentioned uh, how there can be also uh, a strong sense of self that's more unconscious, that's linked with our own psychological history and ways that we may have been hurt or there may be some wounds or some limitations, and I think all of us have this in different ways, that when uh, we are in situations in which we fear we might be wounded or something comes up related to that hurt, there's a strong sense of self there, often with a motivation to protect and so forth. And that uh, this is where Western psychology is very helpful in identifying, helping to identify uh, what those senses of self are and how to, how to work with them, how to, how to heal uh, from, from those kinds of wounds. So, for example, if I, uh, if I or someone else was, as a child, had my parents tell me repeatedly, uh, you're not very smart, you know, you are, um, you're dumb. And I would grow up tending to have internalized that. And I would tend to, in a situation maybe which was requiring me using my intelligence, this is totally independent of whether I am dumb. And, and often, you know, I think we probably know histories of some people who were told that and, you know, turned out, I don't know, to be Nobel Prize winners or something, or people who were extremely successful. You know, but we can get that conditioning and it can manifest in us feeling extremely defensive in certain situations, judging ourselves, maybe judging others who judge ourselves in that way, being, and so forth. So we all have certain ways that the sense of self develops because of those psychological uh, materials. Uh, there's also, probably in the, in the teachings of the Buddha, the, the sense of self that's pointed to is probably, in a sense, more general. It's the sense of self that is there whenever there's any kind of grasping or pushing away of experience, which can include uh, some of the other kinds of self that I've already mentioned. You know, we can grasp, this is probably a more general account of, of self, so we can grasp at a, uh, you know, my, my role. I can say, oh, look, I am, I am a spirit rock teacher. I'm cool. You know, or something like that, or, or um, you know, you can say, you say with some friends, I'm a meditator. I go to Spirit Rock. It's cool. There are cool people there. You know, um, you should go. <laughs> right, or whatever, whatever we do. I, I won't ask. I won't ask for a raising of hands whether, where this comes up, or you know, or we can. So we do that in various ways. So there's some way that at the most basic experiential level, the self is formed whenever, whenever there is a grasping onto 
any aspect of experience as being me or mine, or I like this, I don't like this, and so forth. Um, so we can grasp onto sense experiences as we were uh, noticing in the guided meditation. We can be with sense experiences in a direct way, but we also often grasp or push away. There can be, there can be that, that sense of self. We obviously do this with ideas and views. This is my view. I'm right about this and so forth. And so the invitation is to see where there is this kind of grasping onto, onto self. And again, it's, uh, we all do this and we can approach this with a sense of compassion and really uh, essentially giving ourselves slack but, and to see where this is. And this is also, we'll come back to this later, sometimes looking very closely at how we do this, at how we form a sense of self, can have its scary aspects. And I know that this was true for me. I told some of my own stories a few weeks ago that when we look a lot at how much we manifest self, it can be shocking sometimes. And this, again, is one of those areas that I think uh, Scott brought up last time, uh, that the looking at self and the thinning of self is something I've presented it in as if it's this, it may be as if it's this simple, logical process of thinning oneself and coming to greater awakening, but that leaves out the step-by-step challenges of that process. And I know for me, when I saw how much self-image was sometimes there in certain situations, it was not easy to be with. And I saw that, I mentioned the experience a few weeks ago where I was in a retreat where I was noticing self-image of myself coming up in a way which, and what was hard about the situation, you know, this was that situation where I was, um, um, well, I I was young, so everything is excused. (laughs) But uh, I was, you know, I was in my 20s and I was wanting to be a good meditator and I was sick and I was sniffling and moving around and I was positive that's not what a good meditator did and I had to sit with that like for 10 days. And I watched my self-image deconstruct before my eyes, and it was scary. It was not easy experience to to do that, you know. And uh, that can happen in retreat. And we have that's why we come back to that. We have support for this. And you know, a lot of us do this more gradually, so it's not, you know, we don't have necessarily extreme experiences. But there are moments when we f- can feel a little wobbly, or you know, my gosh, there's so much self here. You know, what's going on? So I just want to mention that. We'll come back to that. That this process of looking at self is not always easy, or looking at how much I identify with my views, how much I think I'm right. You know, if we look carefully at that, it can be shocking, you know, just to notice that. Um, or we might, after looking at it, decide that I think I'm right and I'm totally justified. No, just joking. <laughs> um, you know, so there, there is this... There is this um, a sense of grasping that tends to form the self. Uh, my friend and colleague David Loy, who's written a, a number of good books, one of his most successful books is called Money, Sex, War, and Karma, which I know that title was not David's title. <laughs> uh, but it had, one of the themes that he's brought out a lot is how one way of understanding the theme of not-self is by seeing that... Um, 
there's a way that we have an underlying sense of lack, all human beings do, that we somehow, that, that there's actually, we might say, nothing ultimately to hang on to, and yet we want to hang on to something, <laughs> right? And there's an underlying sense of lack. We try to find, oh, let me find, let me hang on to this, let me hang on to that. And in David's analysis, that sense of lack is impossible to fulfill. To fill. We may try to fill that sense of lack by being this, or being that, or getting money, or having these kind of experiences. Oh yes, now I'm satisfied. But the, the, the David's analysis is that that sense of underlying lack can never be filled. So the sense of being a firm, totally together self is a, uh, ultimately a futile pursuit. Yeah. On the other hand, we can be, as Western psychology often tries to help us be, reasonably well-adjusted. <laughs> but part of the invitation is to look at that underlying sense of self. And the underlying need or the grasping that wants to hold on to this or hold on to that or be this self-image or if I have this, then I'll really be successful. So again, to look at that can be uh, challenging. There can be a certain way that we feel some of our usual supports are taken out from under us when we really look at this theme. So this, I don't want to underestimate how this is a challenging theme. It's a challenging theme and the, um, one of the good things about this practice is that we have ways of doing that without pushing too much, without rushing, kind of doing it at our somewhat, we might say, at our own, our own pace. And so there's a, there's a sense in which the, the sense of self is particularly supported by this grasping and then a certain degree of conceptualization around the self. You know, that we think we are this or that. We have certain concepts. And it's actually the concepts that form the sense of self. Because in actuality, we can't really grasp onto anything. Because experience is always fleeting, we can't, I can't really grasp on to my self-image. I can grasp on to my thought of my self-image. Do you get the difference? I can cling to my concepts, but I can't really cling to experience because it's always changing. You know, I can't, I can't really grasp on to this experience or this taste or this positive experience. I can grasp on to ideas about it, though. And so there's a strong link between self and conceptualization and the proliferation of concepts. And so it's, that's where so we can particularly see that experientially. From the Buddha, what one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates with associations, memory, and ideas. And then these notions assail and overwhelm a person. Another passage, in whatever way one conceives of self, the truth is other than that. <laughs> strong, strong statement. Another passage, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I think this is on our, our handout. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. I shall be a percipient is a conceiving. My overcoming of all conceiving, when I do that, 
one is called a sage at peace. So there's that, there's that link between conceptualization. It's, it's linked with the, somewhat with the Western, there's a Western model that's a Western myth. Some of you remember the myth of Narcissus? Remember what happens to Narcissus? Narcissus sees his own image in the water and falls in love with the image. And there's a way in which self is that. And in some versions of the myth of Narcissus, Narcissus does not only falls in love with his own image, again, which is not the reality, falls in love with his own image, but then in some versions falls into the water trying to get hold of the image and drowns. So again, that's a Western image of some of the dangers of being overly preoccupied with self. It's a rather sobering image, isn't it? Think of that. We fall in love with a certain image of ourselves and potentially even fall into it and, and um, die. So, so how to then shift towards the sense of not-self? Or how to explore this? How to explore experience without that sense of self. In the guided meditation, we did a sequential movement towards increasingly, towards seeing increasingly subtle levels of self. And one could follow that practice um, at home or as a sequence. And I mentioned the last time I was here, there, there is a certain sequence by which we explore how self appears and increasingly open to not-self and there, we could see this as moving step by step, stage by stage, towards uh, the deepest understandings of not-self. So how do, we, how do we start there? And it's interesting that right until the very end, there always is a certain sense of self. And this is what I was calling the skillful use of self. That you'll see that all of these practices depend to a certain extent on what we might call a skillful sense of self. So, for example, the first, what I was calling the first step, would be to learn as a practitioner to uh, be able to stabilize attention, to have the mind get calmer, to be able to develop mindfulness, to develop different qualities that take one out maybe of an extremely self-centered approach, to develop generosity, kindness, warmth, be connected with others, to act ethically, all of this depends on a sense of self. I will be ethical, right? I will meditate. And we have a sense of self that can really be a support for that kind of action, to meditate, to be ethical, to do this, to do that. And that's helpful, right? And in a way, we can't really get towards not-self and experiencing that more deeply without having a sense of self. People who have not developed a healthy sense of self cannot do very well with meditation. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? So I hope you're enjoying some of these paradoxes and flips. And everyone staying with me with this? So it's pretty fascinating. You know, I mentioned Jack Angler, the psychologist, said you have to have a self before you go beyond the self. And we can see how, uh, again, we develop a self I think in all cultures there's some sense of self-developed and there are ways that that's helpful. 
to have a sense of self and say, okay, I will write down on my to-do list, meditate every day. You know? I will try to be ethical. And some of that is really can be there with that, some of the, with, with a lot of that sense of self. Or we might say the cultural conditioning to really think that my self matters supports my spiritual practice in certain ways. And that can be helpful. It may not support other things, but it can support, it can support, it can support that practice. And so that really is, in, in many ways, an initial ste- step or stage that we develop certain qualities that will be very important, as it were, for further parts of the journey. Uh, a second level of practice is what we explored in the guided meditation, where we learn better to stay with experience at what we call the level of direct experience. And this, everyone here, I'm sure, does that, does that pretty well, where we can actually stay with the breath, stay with body sensations, even sometimes stay with thoughts, almost as if we are just watching them come and go. In other words, we can stay with experience increasingly without trying to control it and without a lot of commentary. I think how many people experience that, at least some of the time, that can can really open up in that way. And um, I think the people who didn't raise their hands have so perfected not-self that they're just not even, (laughs) not even playing along with this game of raising hands. So, (laughs) um, in any case, there's that sense which we, you know, it's, it's valuable in our meditations to sometimes consciously do that, even for a short time. Just say, take three minutes and try to experience whatever's happening without a sense of trying to control it or direct it and have that sense at the level of sensation. And it's very interesting to do that with, with thoughts, which we usually think and have the thought, I am thinking, and this is my thought. And one of the insights of meditation is that thoughts actually are just coming and going without a whole lot of control. Have you noticed that? <laughs> if we had control, we wouldn't repeat thoughts so much. <laughs> there was that famous uh, investigation at Stanford which says 93% of our thoughts are totally old. <laughs> We're just repeating stuff over and over again. You know. And if we had control, would we repeat 93% of the time? I don't know. And so we can, we can see that the thoughts actually are just, uh, they're t- often just coming. You know? And we say, oh, that thought just came. And then we say, oh, that's my thought. Oh, oh you know, better follow it. You know? And when we meditate more or develop, we might say maybe uh, more mindfulness, more awareness, we can actually be with the thoughts, just following them, noticing them, without so much taking them personally, which is very interesting. It's like that bumper sticker, you know, how, how does it go? Uh, don't, don't believe, believe don't believe, don't believe the thoughts just because you think them or something like that. Don't believe everything you think. Or there's, there's another one that says something like, don't believe it just because you thought it, <laughs> right? And, and that's actually pretty interesting, right? That we actually have thoughts and we say, oh, there's just that thought going. And sometimes, when we study it enough, we can know, oh, there's that thought there. I have that thought there because I have watched this advertisement so many times. Yeah. Jack Cornfield tells a story of having repetitive thoughts in the 
you know, in the rainforest of Thailand of seeing a big hand reach into a Cracker Jack box and look for the prize. <laughs> you know, and so we can, we can see sometimes that, and it helps when you just see, oh, there's that thought, I have that thought, and we can have some sense. Well, that thought's happening because I've had that thought so many times in the past, or I, you know, and I am, uh, I am conditioned to be a little anxious about this or that or whatever. You know, and we can actually watch the thoughts come and not take them quite so personally. So there's this whole way that we practice being with the different constituents of experience without so much um, grabbing hold of them or pushing them away. And that can, again, in our practice, just to do that every sitting, have this three-minute or five-minute period when we just leave ourselves open to watch that, can be quite illuminating. Because what happens is when we experience that more and more, there is a kind of a thinning of the sense of self. And we have a sense that there is intention and there is will, but there might be more of a sense of things are actually just happening, just continuing. And it's not so much that they're happening because of central control. Which again, as I've mentioned a few times, matches up well with what we know of the brain. They have not found central control in the brain. Interesting, isn't it? It's more association of coordinated processes, which is um, who we are. We're coordinated processes, which are also coordinated with others and with the rest of the world. So that really is, could be a, a, second, a second step from the Buddha. Uh, that second stage is really looking carefully, increasingly without a sense of self. Attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of what life is. It is simply the eyes and sights, the ears and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and taste, the body and sensations, the mind and, mon- and mind objects. Anyone who said that he or she was going to describe anything beyond this would not be speaking of something they knew about from direct experience. So then, in our mindfulness, we are still paying attention. There's a sense of self still. So in the further stages of the guided meditation, we thin a little bit further. One way of thinning is to practice what we call choiceless awareness. In the earlier meditations, I am being mindful. There's still a sense of self there. I am being mindful of this. I am focusing. I am deciding what to focus on. There, we could say there's still a sense of self. It may not be very thick, but there's still a sense of self we let go of one further part of that and we go into what we might call choiceless awareness, which again, if you're new to it, you can practice it just for a few minutes at a time. It's letting the experience just be whatever it is and we don't choose um, what to focus on. It's like that model of we just focus on what's right in front of ourselves. So I'm sitting here and I'm like right now, I'm noticing body sensations, visual field, my fingers, a thought, when should I get back to the talk, <laughs> and so forth. So we, we can just track that. It's, it's simple. We just track that. And when we do that for sustained time, it's very interesting because we, we can, for a sustained time, have one experience after another happen, and there doesn't seem to be anyone controlling it. It's quite interesting. And then I, I took away a further as it were, support of self, in having us do that with eyes open. 
because the eyes and vision seem to be so connected with a sense of self and a sense of objects and language and so forth, so that when we are somewhat stabilized with choiceless awareness, we can start to open the eyes at first in meditation and say, can I just be with that experience, even with the eyes open, without grasping or fixating? That's very, very hard in my experience. And one has to, in in a sense, train there. It's possible to do in meditation to train so even the eyes stop fixating so much. Very interesting. And then this last step that I took us to was even letting go of the intention to be aware. In all of our meditation so far, guess who has remained? The meditator, who is a form of the self. The meditator who, who intends to be aware. And in this last step, we let go of that. I did that by the clapping. And in many uh, traditions, you know, this opening up where we let go of this further, as it were, aspect of self, opens us up to something quite deep where there's a wonderful sense of awareness, but without any reference point inside or even outside. And things just are in that kind of uh, awareness. Things come and go. We still have normal experiences, but there's no grasping or fixing on any experience. There's a passage in the uh, Dhammapada, let me see if I can find this, where the Buddha says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the farther shore. That's from the Dhammapada. Let go of the past and future. We know what that means somewhat. That might be letting go of thinking about the past and future. What does it mean to let go of the present? I think that's related to this larger sense of awareness where we're not fixating even on anything in the present. And that seems to be connected with this large awareness, which can also be connected with a sense of love and a a kind of radiance. That's how it's talked about in the text. There's a sense of radiance. You know, when I have mentioned how that can appear, again, in in many traditions. Um, The Buddha, this mind is radiant and brightly shining, freed from all visiting defilements. One of my favorite Tibetan passages that I've given sometimes goes like this, open like the sky pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. Let your mind be like that. And that's where this last, last um, step, if we want to call it that, goes. And so how to look back at this in, in terms of some of these other themes I wanted to bring up, you know, this, this sequence. Uh, first, to mention that I think experientially, this, this describes a path, and it's okay to be exactly where we are. And in a sense, as I mentioned, we learn and we stabilize wherever we are. We try to stabilize, and we need to stabilize somewhat before we go further, although we can have tastes, at our, maybe at our most quiet. We can have tastes sometimes of this whole path. I imagine, again, everyone had at least some taste, even of that sense of what we could call a pure awareness at the end. 
people could have a sense of that. And so we have a center of gravity that can stabilize wherever we are. So my stabilizing place or my place where I'm working may be to develop this sense of skillful self where I'm being more ethical. I have a daily practice. My mind is getting more quiet. That's a very important um, part of, of this path where it might be that I'm really giving a lot of focus to where the sense of self appears. And that's, that's a focus. And we really can be at any, any part on this, on this path. I mentioned how there is a certain degree of uh, challenge that can appear as we, as it were, thin the self more. That there can sometimes be uh, some disorientation, some fear, some anxiety. And I know in my own experience, in the stories I mentioned earlier, that that does sometimes arise. When we notice self so much, it can be disorienting. When we let go of some control of experience, it can be disorienting. I remember for myself, it was both interesting and sometimes shocking to see how much I wanted to control the future. You know, very impossible. But to see that, you know, it shifts, all of this shifts, we might say, our sense of self or our sense of experience. And there can, just to know, there can be moments where it's a little bit scary, where it's disorienting, as talked about in a lot of the texts that there are moments where we traverse something, where we let go of some, something that was a support for us, a sense of self, something thick, and that is always going to be challenging. So in those cases, we need community, we need support, we need guidance. We need to know, as I mentioned last time, that everyone who traverses this path more or less goes through the same thing. That my confusion about self is to be expected and it's shared by everyone who goes the same direction. That's very reassuring, as I mentioned, to go from a sense that my disorientation is entirely my personal problem, to be happy that we as a community are collectively disoriented. <coughs> if I could, could say it that way. And then, and we can have a sense also of where the self is skillful. You know, where we where we, it's useful to have that sense of self and we don't, we don't let go too quickly. So I just want to close uh, with maybe two quotations. One is, one is from, and maybe, 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 maybe we'll add one point, that last comment about the, the places where disorientation or anxiety arise is a reason that all of this should be held with compassion and metta that as we go further into the self, being with, the, being with this in, in, in the framework of compassion and metta is really, really crucial because, because we all have to deal with this. We all have been conditioned to have a sense of self. And as we practice and it becomes thinner, it's challenging for all of us. And so there can be a lot of compassion and there can be a lot of compassion for the culture. You know. Shanti Deva from the 8th century says, this world has a certain degree of insanity because people are confused about themselves. And we can see how that grasping after self is there on a cultural level in such a, such a thick way. Yeah. And actually, next time I'm going to talk especially, I'm going to step back a little bit and talk about how a shifting of a sense of self actually is very significant culturally and socially to meet some of the needs of our times. 
I believe that, that we practicing here actually have an important role to play as we go into a more interdependent sense of self. This is very crucial for our world, really. So I'm going I'm to focus a little bit more on that. This is from Buddhaghosa from about 1,500 years ago. Mere suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. There are deeds, but there is no doer of the deeds. Nibbana is there, but it is not the self who enters Nibbana. The path is real, but there is no traveler of the path. No doer of the deeds is found. No one ever reaps their fruits. Empty phenomena roll on, dependent on conditions all. And then just ending by remembering that uh, what I found is the deepest teachings combine that sense of exploring self and not self, withholding everything with compassion and with loving kindness. That that is at the heart of this because it's... um, This looking more deeply at who we are and what's real is not always easy. It has its challenges. I mean, we need community. And we need to really hold ourselves and others with this, this uh, big heart. So I'll end with that. take a few uh, questions now. So, Marty, we can keep these, yeah. keep these on. So have time for one or two questions, um, please. Yeah. Um, when you clap your hands, it feels like this big, still, clear lake. Yeah. And I wonder if the bell does the same thing. Yeah. And that's maybe why we ring the bell. Yeah. Yeah, that's how many had something like that experience of clapping, something like a still lake or something just for a mo- few moments is calm and peaceful. How many had something like that experience? Yeah, um, yeah, the bell could do that as well, I think. And um, yeah, what's, what's interesting is that we can have access to that fairly readily. And some of the practices that one could do is actually to have that be more and more available. That, that is possible and some of the meditation practices and it re- that requires to have that come out more. We need to have fairly quiet mind, you know, but we can, we can experience that and you can, you can um, do that yourself, you know, at home, sit around clapping. <laughs> and please, yeah. So the question is about, uh, among Buddhist scholars, let's say, how much of a consensus is there that the best translation of anatta is not-self as opposed to no-self? 
from what I read, almost everyone would would make that point. I mean, it's I think grammatically, it's the um, the use of a is uh, as a prefix is similar, it being an Indo-European language, is similar to the use of a in English, where we say amoral. And we, we would mean not more. It means not. So I think that's, um, of the scholars I've heard, I don't think it's controversial. But it's interesting because we often hear no self. And I think that's a certain confusion, to be honest. It's, so it's an important point. Yeah. Did you have something also? Did you have your hand up? Okay. Uh, Debbie? Speaking of translations, I'm, I'm always a little confused about that pleasant and not pleasant thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really get that. Yeah. What, are, what, would the, what is the translation there? Let's see. The, um, the word is Vedana. Uh, so that, that's, that's not the word. The, the word for the whole field is uh, pleasant and unpleasant. I think... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think it's. Uh, it basically, you know, the the meaning is basically that there's some some liking or disliking or something that feels good or doesn't feel good. So uh, I don't know whether pleasant is sukha. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think so. But I think it's uh, it's taken to be a very basic. Um, Tendent, you know, it's, it's taken to be at a fairly primitive level of our own psychology. In other words, this sort of just the way that amoebas either go in a certain direction or pull back, right? It's, it's taken to be something very, very basic in which you eat broccoli and there's either a liking or something that doesn't like it. Or if you have ice cream, there's a liking or a disliking or something. It's taken to be very, very basic, even uh, prior to thinking about it. So, uh, what, what was... What what's was it sort of going for? Because you hear that used a lot. Yeah. It's you know, just as important as being aware of your thoughts or your emotions. Yeah. Or is being aware of if you're feeling pleasant or un, if it's if yeah. things are pleasant. Or what is the, what's sort of the purpose of it? Yeah. Yes, that's a great question. What's the purpose of looking at pleasant and unpleasant. And in fact, it was taken to be so important that it was made the, an entire foundation of mindfulness or an entire area to contemplate. The Buddha only mentioned four, and this was one of them. You know, he, uh, so so the, the, it's particularly connected with the likelihood when we're not being aware that a pleasant experience will lead one to grasp after it. And an unpleasant experience will lead one to compulsively or reactively push it away, you know, as when we feel something unpleasant in the body. Or there's some pleasant experience in meditation, and I say, oh, this is great, how can I keep doing this, or whatever. So, that's that. mm-hmm. so it's really about that, and we, we're really invited to notice pleasant and unpleasant so that we can notice how that tends to trigger not just grasping or pushing away, but often whole trains of thought, mm-hmm. planning. It mobilizes our system mm-hmm. to, to um, get what we want. Again, it's at a you know, very basic level. You know, I'm a, I don't know in the brain, I don't know whether it'd be called the re- part of the reptilian brain, but it's, it's, at, a, it's at a very basic level, mm-hmm. <coughs> connected with 
you know, ultimately connected with food, sex, and danger, you know, in, in its biological origins, right? <coughs> yeah. So maybe last one, yeah, please. So how do you console yourself when you start losing yourself? How does one, <laughs> how does one console oneself when one starts losing oneself? Um, okay, it's a great question. Um, I would think uh, I would think at least uh, three ways occur to me now. Okay, one is I think the the um, the 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 metta practice or one of the heart practices can really really be helpful. You know, and it's basically to generate a sense. You know, you can almost like have part of yourself. You might say, who's the wise one? holds the one who's a little anxious, like a parent, <laughs> and holds it with a, a, heart, a good heart and says, this is part of it, this is okay, you're learning, but particularly just offers that sense of warmth and holding. Um, I think there can be a certain amount of grief for losing, for maybe having a certain sense of oneself that is past that used to be dominant, that is, ending. And so probably some compassion, even some, maybe even a small grief ritual might be appropriate, you know, for that sense of, of, of self. Um, some reflection can be helpful to know that this is part of the path of practice and that the, um, you know, that there is a, a wise perspective that one can go to, to hold everything. And to, um, I think, maybe be connected with others who know that process and to talk about it with them. And one can receive compassion and empathy from them because they know that process. You know? So I think it's probably, in essence, not different from any stage of life where we go beyond an earlier sense of self. Because remember, we're not talking about totally getting rid of the self all at once. It's more of a gradual process. It's a th I use the metaphor of a thinning. And we could think that at every stage of life, there is some shift away from what the dominant sense of self was earlier. Think of a child going to college, right? Has to let go of something. It is not, it can be scary, right? To go, to go to college, to be one, on one's own, how would you be comforting to that child? Right? Probably not too differently from how you would comfort yourself here. There are just different stages. How do you, you know, how, uh, how about a child going to kindergarten for the first time? I remember going to kindergarten for the first time. It was not easy. You know, we had these older first grade kids saying, kindergarten baby soaked in the gravy. <laughs> You know, the people, I think I asked this once, do people say that in California? No. Anyway, they said that where I was growing up. Kindergarten, you know, and that was, that was terrifying. I was losing the self that was fully at comfort, that was in my, you know, great kingdom at home, and it was hard, right? And how would, how would I get comforted there? How do I get comforted when I retire, you know, and I'm losing a certain self-image, 
that's not so easy either. Right? It can be disorienting. Or, or when I become, when I notice that some parts of my body are not doing as well as they used to. There's a loss of a certain sense of self there. So I think that maybe I would see it a little more continuous like that. And one, for all of those examples, compassion is in order, right? Or some kind of holding or some kind of support. So I think in that sense the, that, um, yeah, I guess the only other thing is I would say is um, also to be careful of, of uh, fearful thinking related to the sense of self-changing. That there can be a certain kind of fearful thinking or thinking that proliferates, just as there could be with all those other examples. You know, I go off to college and I think these people are all smarter than me. I'm going to be just, you know, it's not going to work. I'm going to have to, I'm going to fail out of school and go home a failure, you know. And uh, there can be that kind of thinking. So I think at every, it's really, um, I guess I, what I'm, some of my answer is to name certain things, but also to say that the dynamics are, pr- are not going to be that different from how they are at any stage where we let go of some, in a sense, younger sense of self or less wise sense of self. And we go on that all these different ways of supporting it to know that it's natural to have some disorientation or, or fear or anxiety and to notice uh, how thoughts can proliferate and to track those with the mindfulness, to have compassion for self and to uh, find ways to have compassion from others and to know also that it's a natural process. Maybe It's a very natural process. Great question, really. You could really do, do a lot with that. And you'll have to tell me what you come up with further because there's lots. <laughs> so maybe, maybe next week you tell, because I'd l- love to hear from you um, on that. So, okay, so let's, let's just sit for a moment, and I'll invite uh, us to reflect on how you might practice further with this, if this has been uh, energizing and or inspiring. How would you take this further? What are your, how do you take this further in the next week? In closing, may may our practice and exploration of self and not-self be of benefit to our own being, to those of others. May we be skillful (coughs) as we explore this in the context of community, in the context of friends, this... um, great journey of awakening. May it ultimately be a benefit to all beings. <laughs>